How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the ChopFit. Over the course of the past year, the ChopFit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourself as well. If you use this code, SpearChop10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SpearChop10 for $10 off your ChopFit order. It'll change your life. Thank you. How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. And today we have uh, one of my favorite actors, uh, authors now too, uh, Patrick Kilpatrick. I'll run through some of the movies you guys recognize him from. Minority Report, Under Siege 2, Death Warrant, Class of 1999, Rebo Williams, Eraser, uh, Dark Angel, wide variety. Your work ethic is uh, motivating and prolific. And uh, Patrick, it's great to have you on here today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. I like talking to people. And so it's one of the things, when I started this podcast last year at the onset of COVID, obviously my security business was slowing down because people weren't doing stuff. And I wanted to reach out to people, whether it's martial artists or tactical people or veterans or authors that kind of shaped how I kind of grew up and wanted to do what I want to do. And every character you portray, and I do want to do a deep dive into your how you portray a bad guy or a villain, but the Sandman from Death Warrant, for whatever reason, every time I saw you late night TV when I was growing up, my parents let me watch it, I would be drawn to the fact that there has to be a good guy to fight this bad guy. And your ability to play these bad guys, it's something so mesmerizing. Oh, thanks very much. Um, You're opening up a whole can of worms. There's literally, you could teach a a college class, uh, graduate class, just on cinema villainy for sure. Um, uh, Mine probably came out from the fact that I was very physical and I had a strong voice. Um, I started out playing good guys, but um, kind of like Rutger Hauer after he played the, the Hitcher, he was so good at it, and also Blade Runner, I guess you'd call him an antagonist there. He was so good at it, even though he started out playing Soldier of Orange, which was as a leading man from Holland. Uh, there's an institutional typecasting, and people make um, swift, expedient choices when they're thinking of stuff. So I, I fell into the villainy thing, which is very um, rich acting turf. Um, And I just felt like the longer I did it, sooner or later, I I thought of it as working in silver. uh, And then sooner or later, someone would give me the gold to work with. Um, It it happens occasionally. And and so it's been rich turf. Writing the book I wrote about, part of the reason I wrote the book was to try to answer to myself, how did I end up playing all these villains? And I had a certain energy as a young person, which lent itself to that. And uh, for example, when I played football, I, they gave me a roving linebacker position, which could go anywhere you wanted at any time. And it was called Monster Man. And it was called the Monster Man defense. So the whole defense was 
set up around me going anywhere I wanted to go. It was very memorable defense because we didn't get down in a crouch. We stayed in sort of a martial arts right. wrestler kind of a thing. But when I started thinking about my life, um, I've always done the best when you let me do what I want to do and then exercise it. And um, the truth is when I first started, villains and anger and violence came to me in acting a little bit more readily than the good guys. Um, I don't know why that was. I came out of wherever I came out of his home life and everything, which you know a fair amount about from reading right. the book. I did play good guys though. I played doctors and things like right. that. So I don't think of it as anything different. I just think of it as acting. Um, Hollywood tends to really put people in a bubble, whether it's a bubble of, as a good guy or if it's a bubble as a bad guy. And you have to really, really fight against it and cultivate projects that will allow you to break that thing. Now, I took the Michael Caine, I call it the Michael Caine method of work selection. Just work. Right. Just let the universe sort it out. I had a family. I needed to keep working. I had children. Um, so I just took job after job after job. Um, and the same thing with writing. I just kept writing and writing and writing. So, so I hope I'm answering your question. No. We started this by saying this was a graduate level course in villainy. Um, in fact, we were just writing on a project I got hired to write and uh, produce an Uncommon Dialogue film for my company at the beginning of COVID. So we're very blessed because we've uh, got writing and, and producing work, but we were dealing with the antagonist and what makes a good antagonist. It's not all bad. It's not right. all one note. That's just boring. You have to put in a lot of different inputs into both the good guy the protagonist and then the uh, the antagonist now you could do somebody who's just scintillatingly evil all Correct. the way down the line and that would be interesting too when it was appropriate to do that um it's what so when you get these roles and they they know you are a obviously a prolific actor, but when it comes to the bad guy, if you, if you latch onto a role, whether it's TV or movie, when you get on set, obviously your, your experience, your training, your, your brevity, it, it, it covers itself. Do you get to tell a director or someone be like, Hey, like this is, this do this little nuance here where this villain can be more relatable to someone where it's kind of an easy way. If you just, Oh, he's just going to kill the person. Well, what if he says this, like, are you able to kind of, like put in your type of expertise, I would say, with these type of roles? Well, the short answer is yes. Um, I often get hired just because they know that I can polish the script. Uh, and They pay me separately for the polishing of the script because I'm a writer. They know that I can improv, so uh, I can come up with lingo. I mean, I just did a movie that's coming out and I improved every word that I said in it pretty much. Um, and 
you don't do that in a television series because television writing is network television because it's timed out 28 minutes with three commercials. Gotcha. Every word, they've already spent a lot of time, so they don't want anything to cut into that commercial time. But if you're on cable or you're in a film, then you can improv more because they're not so constrained by that. Um, so yeah, the short answer is, of course. Um, I mean, I come in and I'll elevate marketing and strategic materials and uh, casting. Sometimes they need other lead actors. Uh, and so you call up your buddies and say, hey, I'm doing this piece. Do you want to uh, play this particular part? And because after just being a working actor, your goal is to elevate every project. You only want to be in really good projects. Um, the uh, one of, again, Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, you play Mercenary Number 2, but the line you have in the movie, when you react to the villain reacting to, oh, Casey Ryback, the way that little nuance you put to that character, not only did you elevate the hero, Steven Seagal's Casey Ryback, but you elevated the, the main villain to an even eviler guy where he's going to kill your character in. Is that something what you talk about? Because I don't, I don't picture that line being written in the script. I picture you being like, I could say this. I could make both sides look really great. Yes. Um, that particular script in my entire career was probably the most unrealized major studio script I've ever seen. When oh. it came together, it was really skeletal. And so in that situation, I mean, you notice I'm wearing a hat, yeah, uh, like an English. You're really looking for anything to distinguish you from the other ensemble, uh, not to unbalance this project, but to elevate yourself and the project. So um, uh, in the case of that line, there's a whole backstory on who he is, who Casey Ryback is. I have a relationship with him in the past or, or and know of him and his background. So you want to part that with the-, the Right. Line. Talking about single lines, I- it's um, so iconic. Well, thanks. I, I, For me, when I remember single lines from that movie, the opening of the show was two helicopters coming up the river. Um, I was poised in a Hummer camouflaged with brush. We, the opening is seen, we burst out of the camouflage. You race up to the train, guys disgorge, they blow the, the door of the of the train, they race down the train, seize the the um, engineer, Jonathan Banks, by the way, who got an Emmy for, uh, I think, uh, Breaking uh, Bad or uh, Better Call Saul, uh, who's a wonderful actor, who's a buddy. But anyway, and then the two helicopters are coming up the canyon and they land and the camera comes from like a half a mile away and all this stuff and comes down and swoops down on me and goes, and I have to say um, 30 seconds. So if I screw this line up, they have to reset this whole deal. It will take like half a day. So um, 
it's the short little lines that can screw you up. Fortunately, I said it and um, well, and I also wanted to add some personality to it. So I went up to Jeff Murphy and I had never met him, the director, who by the way, was such a master. What is really great about that movie is due to him, even though the studio ripped him to shreds right. uh, for the movie. And he went on to a stellar career as a second unit director for the Lord of the Rings trilogies and all this other stuff. But I had never met him. So I walked up to him and I wanted to say, we have 30 seconds, love and kisses. That's all I wanted to say, just to give it some kind of punch or something. And I walked up to him and I said, hi, Jeff. Um, I wondered if I could say 30 <laughs> seconds, love and kisses. And he wheeled on me and he said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And he snarled at me. <laughs> anyway, that was my meeting my director at the time. We became fast friends. And uh, I can't remember exactly what I said for the line because I certainly didn't say love and kisses after he said that. But um, anyway, those are pressurizing lines. I'm glad you got a lot out of that particular line. When you have a movie like that, you have to make every little scene memorable in, in the best way you can well it's like you're only on there as mercy number two but every time you're on screen something memorable happens i think that's a testament to what you brought out there okay. and so is there ever a character now specifically villain that say the sandman from death war it's tough to shake where you actually have to kind of step away before you go your next role and you got to carry the baggage or the brevity of that character has that ever happened with you you know, I think when you first start out, um, that's a little bit more challenging. Okay. Um, and depending on them, but as you go along and you become more adept at your equipment, um, supposedly Sir Lawrence Olivier could tell a naughty joke and then step on the stage and be uh, Henry V. You know, so you become a little bit more adept at exercising your equipment and being able to like driving a fast car, being able to bring the brakes down, go around a curve and all of that. Um, there's some famous method actors who stay in that character all the time. And that's a good thing. And um, sometimes when it's necessary, you do that. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to visit uh, serial killers upon your family, uh, <laughs> which I've never done, no. Right, depending so, uh, if, if it's Thanksgiving or Christmas, maybe. Uh, <laughs> so when you do something, with, a lot of your characters, obviously you're either hand-to-hand -hand combat, uh, military training, police training, all this crazy specialized training. So when you get to work, I know you talk about your book with like the LAPD or government agencies to train, yeah. how much, how much, like what kind of goes into that? So you get ready for the role. Like, is there a certain number of things where the director's like, Hey, you need to spend two weeks with the LAPD or you got to spend two weeks with this detective to kind of figure out like what goes into that building of that character? Well, they never had to tell me to do that because I love doing those things. So I initiated them well before I even got to the, um, gotcha. You see, I came to 
acting, having gone through not only writing for magazines as a journalist, but I'd been a, a football, basketball, baseball, fencing, horseback riding, swimming, wrestling person. So I knew about athletics and I knew about competition and I knew about um, literature and I knew about uh, shooting because I had a shotgun in my hand when I was nine, uh, just like a horse. So I had a lot of those physical things to begin with. Um, like if when I did Requiem for a Heavyweight, which is a, a play about a boxer, the director would go, you went down to gyms, didn't you? And studied those guys. And I didn't need to. I had already knew the, the realm because I trained as a boxer, things like that. So eventually I said, yeah, I went down to gyms because he wouldn't believe that I hadn't gone down to the gyms. So I, when we teach actors and I have, so often when we don't have producing or writing or something else, I teach actors, I always encourage them to follow their passions because the universe is gonna open up and bring your work with what you're studying. Um, like I traveled to Asia and it was about two and a half weeks before, totally unrelated, not though. Right. Uh, two weeks before I was hired to write a movie set in Asia. So oh. the universe works in a miraculous way. So if you train in mixed martial arts and that's your passion and you're an actor, then the universe is gonna give you a place to put that. Just like Christopher Walken was a vaudeville person and right. a dancer and a singer, he was able to put that musicality into his work. So. Um, I never had to be told by directors because I loved all that That's stuff. That's cool, right. Yeah, Super. I love learning, I love learning. So um, that's the glory of being a producer or a writer or a director or actor, you're constantly learning. Isn't that the glory of life? It should be, I think people like to, I think people don't like to put the work in, they want the outcome, the best outcome without putting the time or effort in. I think that's where people fail, they don't realize that, you can you can still be successful and achieve the level you want, but put the time in. It's a blessing. The universe, in my opinion, doesn't open up and give you the opportunities until the universe goes. Yeah, I was talking the other day when I first got here. I made some color headshots, and in those days, nobody had color headshots. And I went around to all the studios and the casting people. And when I got on the studio for one job, I would go to the other casting places in that thing just to introduce myself and give them a color headshot. As far as I know, I never got a job connected to that exercise. But I think the universe goes, you know what? This guy really, really wants to work and he's ready to work. So even though we're not going to pay it off that way, we're going to pay it off another way. I, I think you're, you're absolutely insightful. You have to do the work in whatever work that is for the universe to say, yeah, this person needs a pat on the back and ushered through. There are a couple parts in your book, obviously the book, Dying for Living, Sins and Confessions of a Hollywood Villain and Libertine Patriot. Uh, what Bluebeat, the, the book, having known about you just through movies and television and done the very bare minimal research 
But once I got the book, it's, there's a couple of parts of there where you talk about the car accident. Uh, you talk about when you were a foreign correspondent in Venezuela. And for every reason, these different experiences you you went through your life, your upbringing and the sports, like I could kind of see how it kind of pushed you to drive you to be who you are today. And when you put this book together, and I don't know how you remembered half these stories because I can't even tell you when I got the grocery store yesterday. And is there stuff when you go back and rewrite this stuff, do you have like flashbacks or type of stuff where it's like, maybe I could have done this better or differently better? Or is it like, how tough is it to put your story out on paper for everyone to read? Well, all of those things, I can tell you that writing just like acting is a miraculous process and having done it professionally for magazines and television stations and things like that, been a journalist and that kind of thing. I know if you sit down and do it, it's just gonna manifest itself and it's gonna come out. Um, so writing comes naturally for me. I've never, knock on wood, experienced writer's block because when I have acting, or I call them entertainment warriors. When we teach entertainment warriors, um, and it's always a cross-discipline thing, writing, acting, directing, producing, and to some extent teaching as well. Um, when you want to write, that's an alien thing for people. But you work for a local newspaper or work for a radio station as a writer. You work for a magazine like I did. Uh, or advertising agencies, you deliver the goods. And that's what life is. And you learn about sitting down and just going for it and getting inspiration from wherever you get it. Um, you also learn to ask for help if you're having problems. Um, you know, I'm having a problem with finding the thing. And you, you I don't get delayed. That's what I'm saying. If I'm having an issue, if you're a Navy SEAL, male or female or whatever, and you're trapped, you figure out a way to get out of that trap. Right. Uh, and you adapt and survive. It's the same thing with business. So I hope I answered your question. Um, no, 100%. And working, working at a newspaper or a magazine for a writer gets rid of those mysteries, those blocks, pretty quick. You have to write copy that's compelling. You have to write stuff that picks people up and motivates them. I was very blessed to do a lot of advertising writing that has to cause people to reach in their pocket and send money. So that has to be pretty compelling and it has to touch them where the, in where it motivates them. It's the same thing in writing a script for readers. If you don't grab them from the first moment out, in whatever way that is, sometimes that's elegant, some that's quiet, sometimes that's, that's uh, arresting or, or bursts with action. You have to grab people with the way you say things. So that's how it works. One of the cool things about you is you have this, you're very motivational in the sense your work ethic and drive is almost unparalleled. And one of our listeners, uh, Rebecca, was wondering, and so am I, during that 18-month period, which you, the book you talk about, 
five uh, studio films, 27 TV shows, a couple of independent movies, all this stuff. Where does that come from? Is that your upbringing telling you to work hard or is this or with a combination of you love what you do, you love your craft? I think it's both. Um, uh, what do we take from this experience of the earth, uh, of life? Okay. Right. If you're a billionaire, you can't take being a billionaire. With you can't you, right. take it with you. Right. Um, so you, you have whatever it is that you call your legacy or what you are, are known for. And yes, I do it out of joy. And you have to, even though it's super challenging, you have to figure out how to make choices every day and put some joy behind it, or you're not going to become a very nice person. Right. So, and you're not going to, you're going to not enjoy life. And that's a great sin. So there's that. At the same time, a dog only lives for nine or 10 years or 13, if you're lucky or whatever. And yet they're the most extraordinary creatures. And I used to think that was really unfair why these extraordinary creatures only live for such a short time. And then I realized, let's suppose I live to 104. Right. It's just like a dog's life. Right. It's, it's just a matter of reference. Right. So we're, we're here for only a certain amount of time. What are we here for? Uh, for me, uh, work and creation and the effect that you have on other people and my children and my relationship with my lover and wife, they're one and same person. Right, right. <laughs> um, so what am I here for? I'm here for those experiences to be enriching. I'm here for the global cinematic media uh, uh, audience. I'm here to make money for people who invest in the things that we do. So that's, they asked Olivier, what do you want to be remembered for? And he said, I want to be remembered as a working man. Right. And really, that's what it comes down to. Uh, you, you, um, I don't think we take much with us other than the level of craft and the amount of love and, and geniality and who we are as individuals is what we leave behind. So um, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what I leave behind because you figure in 500 years, no matter what you, no, I don't care if you're Steven Spielberg, they might not know who you are. Right. Um, so you better, but you better find some way to be connected to what you do, that it's larger than yourself, that it's got a sense of craft, um, that it exhilarates you. Right, so I like that's, that. That's why I do it. I'm exhilarated. I mean, you know, you're talking about this period with the, five studio movies and the 27 television shows. I've got maybe 10 movie projects going here. Uh, a staff, uh, I've got graphic artists, uh, uh, researchers, um, script writings operating, interviews with you, publicity, things like that. I'm working now as- Hard as he did, right. As, as concentrated as ever and have been for a long, long time. 
Now, sometimes that concentration takes the form of what looks like a hobby, like pistol shooting or mixed martial arts or something like that, but it all feeds in. It's about concentrated, whatever. I really believe the universe and God, whatever you want to call it, doesn't put us in a place that we don't belong in. Right. right. Um, if you're you, weary, you get to learn what weary is like. <laughs> right. And maybe you want to avoid that. Yeah. Or maybe you want to visit that to your acting or your writing. You've, uh, you've had the, the, um, the career where it spanned all different from Westerns to period pieces, to science fiction, to everything. Is there a, a is, do you have a favorite piece of history? And uh, our friend Lori was wondering, is there ever a time where you get on a period piece? And I'm glad you mentioned your idea of researching the importance of it, where you get on there and be like, hey, this is, are we making a movie just for the movie or are we going to do this the right way? Has there ever been a pushback like that, specifically with period pieces? Again, a graduate level course. Look, the, the thing about movies is, in some ways, at least historical movies, in some ways they're going forward and they're being accepted as truth. Gotcha. So um, as the way it actually was. Now that doesn't constrain you uh, or alleviate you from the responsibility of having to create entertainment. So, you get to play with the concepts of truth gotcha. and the concept, but I think what you want to do is to get to some larger truth that is representative of, you know, like I was reading a thing about Fargo the other day and Fargo is presented as a true story Correct. that occurred. They completely made it up. They were just doing, they wanted to do a movie like it was a true story. <laughs> now, on one level, I think that's pretty funny. On another level, wow, God help anybody who thinks that that's really a true story. Right. Um, so you get to play it any way you want to play it. I, I look at historical events and part of me is saying, we have to present this of what it was, but there are times when you would do what I call hyper-reality. So it's not really the way it was, but it speaks to the larger truth that you're trying to get to. Right. I think when you do something, this is key. You have to do honor to the elements that are there, however you end up doing it. Um, right. If you're gonna do a revisionist view of something that occurred, better be careful there are good reasons for doing that. I could talk about this forever. No, it's I, I, lo I love a it. situational thing. Um, why do we like Saving Private Ryan? Because Saving Private Ryan takes us emotionally and viscerally into combat in ways that I would argue 
nobody's done as well since perhaps Black Hawk Down, you know? Right. And um, you talk about Black Hawk Down, how it was a disservice that that movie uh, never got any major awards. Well, yeah, it got a couple of Academy Awards for like sound editing and things like that. But if you look at that year, I forget who won that year, but I think Spotlight did. I mean, which movie do you think was more difficult to shoot, Black Hawk Down or Spotlight? How about I go Black Hawk Down? Yeah, I mean, I think Spotlight's really arresting, a really interesting, yeah. interesting film. But if you, when you come down to the concept of best picture of that year, again, it's a subjective thing. Uh, you know, I can't even imagine the intricacies Ridley Scott had to do to do Black Hawk Down. Um, and so I think, for my mind, Black Hawk Down was the best picture of that year. And nobody's asking my opinion, but right. I think, look, it's like Val Kilmer in Tombstone. He deserved an Academy Award yes. nomination. Yes. I think that, to my mind, that's probably the greatest oversight by the Academy in the history of the Academy. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of them because I can't see every movie that's out there. But if ever somebody uh, deserved an Academy Award nomination, Val Kilmer did for the, you know, Doc Holliday. Right. So, you know, the Academy is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination and it just comes down and it's, uh, it's a parlor game. One of the uh, most interesting parts for me in your book, and there's a ton of them, obviously for the security reasons, my background, but you're, when you talk about the bodyguard work for uh, Jimi Hendrix or Hubble Pie or Jeff Beck, like, I thought that was a really cool thing. And I would have had no, no idea that you actually did that for a little part of your life, which was really cool. Yeah, I, it was such a privilege to do that. And uh, just a, an extraordinary experience. I mean, I... What can I tell you? I mean, I, you know, I was getting paid $6,500 a year, which wasn't bad in those days for a writer during right. the day, but I was making a hell of a lot more money at night as a bodyguard for those groups. And at the same time, seeing the greatest music, yep, the most seminal rock that's ever been visited on the planet. Um, you know, that things that came out of all the Chuck Berry and the Elvises and the, uh, all those guys and became Jimi Hendrix and all those other things. So I, and Led Zeppelin, I don't think to this day, the, the groups are still walking in the shadow of those people. Um, does that make them any less relevant? No, the brilliant stuff happening today too, but right. Um, it probably wasn't until Guns N' Roses that I thought anything even came remotely close to Led Zeppelin and stuff. By the way, the 80s hair bands were interesting in their own right, you know, and yes. Journey and all those other things. So I had the privilege of doing some writing for Rolling Stone at the same time uh, doing the bodyguarding stuff. So yeah, it was really crazy visual and memorable. Um, everything from violent to lucrative. Uh, I love that. And before we kind of wrap up here, the thing about your book, and you kind of touch upon it, something I was always curious about is you are unabashedly always yourself. And 
the idea of a liberty patriot in the simplest layman's terms for people that haven't read the book yet or don't understand what that means. Can you kind of describe what that is so people have an idea of what that encompasses? Well, um, I guess when I wrote that, what I meant that was I'm about as crazy libertine my life gotcha. in a lot of ways, uh, particularly prior to getting married and things like that, that you possibly can be. Um, at the same time, I, that's not incompatible with loving America and loving the ideals that came to America. And everybody knows that we're in a constant state of conversation about what this country is becoming and where it's going and things like that. And I view that as a healthy thing. Um, I think some things are long overdue, but the thing is we can all come to America as a patriot of America. And we also have to expand beyond, expand beyond that to the human condition. Um, that where are we in relationship to the human condition? So look, you can be a criminal. I think we believe in redemption. You can be a criminal, but you could still be a patriot. You could be, um, now you probably need to realign your priorities on some level. Right. It's, it's possible to love your country and to love the world at the same time, and yet not have the freedom of your own personality be restrained at all. So I think the word libertine is really cool because if you look back at Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and those guys, they loved life. Yes. They loved education. Uh, if they were heterosexual, they loved women, they loved style. I, I sometimes think Benjamin Franklin became, uh, and Jefferson, they became ambassadors to France just because they loved the culture over there so yes. much and they loved the society. Um, at the same time, they loved the concept of America. And so uh, when I wrote that, that's what I was trying to call attention to. I mean, doing this Asian film that I got hired to write and produce and we just delivered the script and now we're producing. You begin to look at other systems of government and how can we blend those things so that it becomes a better thing for the planet and stuff. And we all have to acknowledge where we've come from and what we've done and how we become the finest people that we possibly can. Um, to achieve not only our goals, but what's good for the planet and what's good for the human condition. Uh, I think most people are motivated by that. It's just they have different views of how to get there. Right. Um, I love this country so much because the uniqueness of America truly is unique. Now, it's not alone, you know, France, um, uh, a lot of other governments, whether it's a tiny um, Pakistan or Yemen or someplace else, they have their own societal things that have to be looked at and cherished and stuff like that. I think people have to decide how, what governments function best and what societies function best for the elevation of the human condition. 
Um, right now, we're in a big discussion globally. What is going to triumph is the authoritarian nature of the Communist Party, the better way for people to go forward? Or is this, this chaotic, crazy experiment that we right. have in America the best way to go forward? I tend to come down on individual freedom and things like that. Uh, obviously, if you go to a local town hall and you talk to, it's chaotic. Yes. It can be mind-numbingly long, but I still believe that the free expression of ideas and uh, participation and supremacy of the individual uh, with responsibility is the best way to go. So that, hence, I'm a libertarian patriot. Love that. Um, Love that. We have some insidious forces in this country that are restrictive to liberty and things like that. We have to look at that too. But while we're looking at that, let's also look at the, the, the elevation of human rights around the world. Because I think there's a hypocrisy to just rip ourselves apart and not call to task other countries. But then again, it's not our place to be calling other nations how to run right. their things always. We can only decide, no, we don't really want to run things quite like that. <laughs> no, so these are the things that define us. Last question. Is there a, is there a, every time you do complete a role or write a script, do you get goosebumps from that role? Or is there, is there like a type of feeling and it's our friend Sudi asking, Sonny, uh, is there a, is there a goosebump moments every time you accomplish something in your career? Or how do you kind of characterize each thing you complete, whether it is a simple script or a long script or a movie or whatever? Well, it's no question I'm rooted towards the completion and resolution of things. I'm not so sure that ever exists because you may think that you've completed a script, but you're going to be tinkering with it and elevating it and changing it as actors come aboard and things like that. Um, it's really nice to hit the payday, but that's not the end all. The end all is, have I made it as fine as I possibly could. So I try to get a sense of accomplishment with every moment uh, because the relationships I have with my colleagues are liberating and illuminating and uh, fractious sometimes and yep. things like that. But that's usually because of a flaw in leadership. Um, uh, it's like my relationship with my wife. I've got to listen and I've got to absorb what she's saying and um, and I revel in her brain and that kind of thing. So I'm not so sure that every step, every second isn't part of the accomplishment. I'm pretty much of a professional though. I'm into <laughs> getting paid and I'm into getting other people paid. Like I don't really believe in interns. I, I believe I like to create jobs for people. I love that. So that's great. This is uh, now I know you're on Facebook. I think you're on Instagram. Uh, yeah. Where can people can people find you there? Do you have a website? Uh, I got this book off Amazon. I highly recommend it. But any other places you want people to kind of see what you're up to or support what you're doing? Whether I mean, do you even offer acting classes? Because now I'm I don't want to be an actor. 
but after this last 45 minutes, I am so motivated. Um, lots of questions there. Um, let's see, I've got a movie called Catalyst coming out, which I'm excited about, a director named Chris Falkins, who we're putting another project together and I've held on to him. Um, there's a movie out, coming out called Nightwalk. Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't say anything about that one. I because it was really uh, challenging to uh, elevate that project. Um, and my PR people would say, shut up and just focus on your performance. But um, let me say to your listeners out there, the worst thing that somebody can do is not listen. And that movies are very, very collaborative. And uh, what you wanna do is have it be elevated to be globally significant. And that's really tough if you're dealing with people who want to, the central thing is they wanna write, direct, produce, and tell their parents that they did that. Because right. that's a recipe for disaster unless they're Martin Scorsese. And a lot of people aren't Martin Scorsese yet. But um, what was the question? Oh, Catalyst is coming out. What else? Yep. What was uh, social media, Facebook, Instagram, they can oh. find you there. Yeah, I should probably spend more time on Instagram, but uh, Facebook I do. I have a, an Instagram account. Um, I shepherd what get, goes on there, but because we're writing and producing and doing so much of that stuff, uh, I have to pop yeah, yeah. in and out of that. Um, uh, the teaching, I... Uh, put it aside for a while um, because uh, we were so busy as producers and script writers. Um, I do have some select students that come along cool. and uh, we're open to that and they should just go to, they can get our address and contact from patrickkilpatrick.com and autograph copies of the book from there. Uh, it's also available on Amazon.com and Barnes and Is Volume 2 coming? When's that coming? Well, Volume 2 was already written, and I was polishing it, and happy as a clam doing that, and it's a all show business all the time. That has yep. to do nothing with but show business. And I was starting to touch to on the producer stuff, and then the script writing and the film stuff came along, and it was so voluminous and immediate that uh, the polish has been put on hold uh, while I'm doing it. I'm excited and occasionally like an old friend. I can't wait to get back to volume That's two cool. um, because it's going to be even bigger now because I can deal even in more depth on the, the producing and that stuff there um, as well as other acting stuff. So if somebody is really dedicated to studying with us they can just call that's cool um please say you're going to have to bring your discipline by the way you can approach it any way you want the best way to do it is to do it with your whole heart and your passion and uh so we're looking for really top people to work here and also to study here um so they can get to i think it's i am pat kilpatrick on instagram uh, and then Facebook, there's professional and personal. Yep. 
And then there's UD Films, Uncommon Dialogue Films is my company that's on LinkedIn and then UD Films, Facebook or UDFilms.com. No, UD, there is UDFilms.com. You have to have all of these things for financing purposes. As for well. sure, yes. So um, <laughs> UD Films, which is a lot of fun. People can go to UDFilms.com and, uh, and then Patrick Kilpatrick and tell me what they think. Um, like it. We try to have fun with it. PatrickKilpatrick.com particularly is uh, a wash with COVID. <laughs> so everything we've been doing during COVID. Um, so, and UD Films, we it's kind of modeled after a, uh, an early Italian theater. Um, we have fun with it. So Love um, it. We're, we can be gotten a hold of. Love it. Uh, but if, if you're going to come study, realize you're going to come study. I it's like that. It's entertainment warrior program. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Patrick, this was... God bless you. Sorry for this being This was awesome. Long. No, this is truly awesome. But thank you for this. And I wish you all the success. And uh, keep, uh, keep being motivational and uh, keep striving for the best. Yeah, if I could just say to you, everybody who's listening, there's so many opportunities to be creative and passionate out there. And uh, I hope that you're awash with that. Love it. Thank you for this. God bless you, man. You take care today. Bye. Cheers. Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you liked what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, T-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars. The one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate.